Welcome to Hope Community Podcast. It's great to have you join us today listening online. We pray you'll be impacted by our message this week. Enjoy. She was seven years old and playing in a field near her village when her father came to her and said that she was to become a jogany. Her only brother was sick physically and mentally and her family believed that dedicating her as a jogany would appease the gods and break the family's bad luck. And since there was no fit male person in her family, it also meant that she would carry on the family name, that she would provide for her family. The entire village attended her dedication ceremony. It seemed like everyone was celebrating her and what she was to become. Like so many others being dedicated as a jogany, she had no idea what this would mean for her future. She had no idea what being married to the goddess would entail. She didn't understand what was going on. All she knew was that her parents said that she was now a jogany and she always obeyed her parents. She was 11 when she was initiated, shortly after reaching puberty. The first man who came to her was her mother's brother and even now she trembles when she says his name. And when she ran to her mother, asked for shelter, her tears were dismissed and she was told to accept it. This is your destiny, she was told. This is what you were created for. After him, there were many men, so many that she lost count. And although her life was brutal, this wasn't an immoral kind of life for her. It was all she knew. And since she had been married to the goddess, there was nothing she could do to change her life. She was no, no way she could say no to any man and nothing was given for her services. It was her duty. Every act of abuse was a worship to the goddess. She didn't attend school but worked hard in the fields as a daily labourer. And if men harassed her while she was working in the fields or walking home, she was obliged to comply. And if they came to her parents' home at night when her work was done or early in the morning before she went to work in the fields, again, there was the abuse. By the time she was 14, she was pregnant. And at 15, she had a daughter. She had no idea who the father was because so many men had been with her. She gave birth at home. She didn't take advantage of government subsidies to have her child in a hospital. She had no idea that this was possible. She was illiterate, she was uneducated, and she did not know her rights. In her late teens, she began to get sick. She struggled with her physical and mental health, and she wondered, who will look after me, and who will care for my children? So Dan asked what it was that drew us to work with TFN. And I think for me, one of my early memories was I was six years old and the television was on and there was a story, a news story. I don't know exactly. I'm, I'm thinking it probably was Mother Teresa, but I really couldn't say. And in that space, they were talking about untouchables and untouchability in India. And as this little girl, uh, as I said, secular home, but brought up in a Christian, in going to Sunday school, it was just instilled in me that everybody has value, that everybody has worth, that everybody is equal and that everybody is created in God's image. So I knew that as a fundamental truth in my life. And here I was as a six-year-old girl watching people being told that they were untouchable, that they had no value and that they had no worth. 
and we'll explain or I'll explain a little bit more how that looks in India. But it just absolutely, something rose up in me even at that young age with just horror and just the wrongness of it. And I think, you know, growing up in a good church and, and going through the Bible and all the, the passages that we learnt and studied, we were very much aware that salvation was really important and that God created us and that He died for us and He wanted us to go to heaven to be with Him. But it's only been in more recent years as we've been in missions for a long time now that I've really started to think through what the biblical call on our lives is. And if we are a Christian, we are called to mission. It's not that some are called to mission and some are not called to mission. You know, it's actually a part of, of who we are and what our calling is. So just a couple of passages from the Bible. You know, if you wake up in the morning and you think, I wonder what God's plan for me is today. What does He want me to do? A really, really good starting point is Micah 6.8. So Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And if you keep that passage before you as you're thinking about your day, whether you're signing up for Red Frogs and going off, whether you're dropping the kids at school and there's single mums in your school community, you know, there's broken people all around us. And if we start our day with saying, okay, God, what does today look like to do justice in my world today, in my space, in my community? What does to love kindness mean? And to do this walking humbly with our God means we're leaning into Him, relying on Him, calling on Him. You know, I feel overwhelmed. I don't have the capacity to meet all these needs, but He does. So walking humbly with Him, allowing Him to direct your path, to speak into where He's calling you, who He's put in your place, in, you know, wherever it is that you're going, who you see and who you meet. And just really thinking about that. And then for us, I think because Jonathan said, you know, we've got this huge passion for issues of justice. This is really a core verse for our organisation from Proverbs 31. It says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. So this passage doesn't say... You know, if there's nothing on Netflix tonight and you've really seen the last episode of The Office, maybe then you could speak up and judge fairly. You know, if you've got a bit of time left over at the end of the day, here's a maybe, something you could consider. These are really strong, direct words. Speak up for those. Defend them. Judge fairly. Defend their rights. And so it's just such a part of who we're called to be. It's a part of what should really be shaping us and, and our thinking as we're walking out our day each day. And then if we, you know, one of the things I found, as I said, I grew up as a Sydney Anglican and I think a lot of our interpretation of what the Scriptures said was very much about me being right before God and making sure, you know, I'm not smoking, I'm not getting drunk, I'm, all these don't do's and then all of these do-do's. And so you spend all your time doing these things and you're, you know that Jesus died for you and you know that it's because of Him you're going to heaven and that's great, I'm safe, I know where I'm going. But in the Bible, there's actually two words that are used throughout the Scriptures for justice and for righteousness. And these words are mishpat and sadakai, except I'm not saying it right. But anyway, 
But Tozer says, if we go back to what these words actually mean, in the Old Testament, they're synonyms. So if you are actually reading these Bibles and it says about, you know, the righteousness pleases God or right, righteousness is used so often. And for that, whenever we read that, we have this sense of morality, a sense of moral purity. But if you understand that it's actually a synonym for justice, it really changes how you read so many passages in the Bible. And when the two words are put together, uh, righteousness and justice, it's got a whole connotation of social justice, of social community and caring for the environment, the people, those on the margins, the widows and the orphans. And when you start reading the Bible from Genesis right through to Revelations and understand the unpacking of the law, how those on the margins were to be cared for, through the prophets, how God was so angry when those on the margins weren't cared for. And then we get all the way through to what we call Jesus' mission statement. So this comes from Luke chapter 4 and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So when Jesus was trying to, you know, this is the first time he's publicly there, he unrolls the scroll and this is the passage from Isaiah that he lands on and he starts speaking into it. Why has he come? This is why. It's good news for the poor. It's setting free those who are captives. It's caring for those who are struggling with health issues, the blind and, and others, and setting at liberty the oppressed. So it's everything that was in the law, all wrapped up through the prophets, what people were chastised about not doing, and him standing there and saying, today, today, this is being fulfilled in your presence. Now, Jesus didn't just pick up a scroll and read it and then go off. He lived it. And as you start looking at his life beyond that point, these are the main characters in his life. The woman at the well who was marginalised. Zacchaeus who was up a tree because he was marginalised. The lepers who were marginalised. It's the widow who lost her only son. It's the woman with an issue of blood. These are the ones he touched. These are the ones who are full of the stories of these people all through the Gospels. And when you start to understand and have a revelation of the essence of the justice streak that's in the whole of the good news, it really impacts our direction and our lives. What we choose to sow into with our finances, with our time, with our prayers, with our priorities. And I suppose when Dan asked the question, um, what shaped us, it's not a quick answer. So basically, there's the answer of what has shaped our thinking. And you know, one of the things that we started to do was every time when we were reading the Bible and we saw the word righteousness, we would substitute the word justice into it and then let that sort of roll over us and ask the Holy Spirit to impact us with the, what, what that actually means and what that looks like. And it's really changed how we see the world. It's really changed how we see missions. And it's really changed how we've seen those on the margins around us as well. 
And I guess, so I mentioned before that we've been in missions for around 20 years. So why do we do what we do? Why the Dalit people of India and how did that come about? And what are we doing in that space? So we were in OM, Operation Mobilisation, for many years. We were on the ships. Jonathan was the national director here in Australia. And as I say, when I was about six, I saw this thing about untouchables on television. It devastated my heart. And then one day we had a leaders' conference in India. Now, I'd heard about untouchability and now I saw it. When you see something, it's really hard to walk away. And so we went to India and we saw the work of OM in India and what they were doing and they had a huge focus on the Dalit people. And we started to understand a bit more about who they are, what their lives are like, what living on the margins looks like and what it talks about, you know, in the Gospels about the least of these. And for me, I thought, these are the least of these. They have been stripped of all dignity. They have been told they're created less than animals. They're not real people. Dogs are higher than them. One of the jobs they can do in lots of places in India, they don't have uh, septic uh, sewage systems. They have these big septic holding tanks. One of the jobs Dalits can do is that they are allowed to clean these out and they get a pittance of money for it. And every year around 20,000 of them die because they drown in human excrement or because they're contaminated. But it's not really deemed to be a problem because there's so many others that will fill that job. You know, we get horrified when the car toll goes up and because we have this idea of the value of a life, every family that's lost, everybody that dies in a car crash, it's splashed across the news. And, And I love that we have that value. But in India, it's just completely different and it's just devastating knowing that these people are told from a very early age that they have no value and worth. So what do we do in this space? We have four main pillars. So... Our four main pillars are education, healthcare, economic empowerment and anti-human trafficking. So, of course, the story I told you at the beginning was about the trafficking that happens and I was using euphemisms and if your head goes to the bad space, you're on the right track because there's plenty of people in this room under 18. So I don't want to say things that are inappropriate, but it's bad. Um, People often say, why are these our four pillars? Why is the gospel not one of our pillars? Well, we actually believe the gospel infuses all of this. We don't separate it out. So when the kids come to our schools and they get education, they also get told that they have value and worth. When sick people come to our clinics, they get health treatment, they also get told, you have value, you have worth, can I touch you, can I care for you? In all of the areas that we work, The gospel isn't a separate thing, it's a part of it. And so that's very important to what we do. So just quickly, a little bit about our schools. We have 97 schools across the country. We have around 26,000 students. These are mainly Dalits, but some of them are Muslims, some of them are tribals. Any child on the margins is welcomed in our school. The schools are often outperforming the local government schools. And so we have high caste families saying, Oh, we want our kids to come to your school so they get better education, but we don't want them mixing with the other children. And we say, your child is welcome to come to our school and you can be fee-paying and that will help offset our costs and they will play cricket in the playground with all the other children. They will learn science with all the other children and they will graduate and together we're breaking down caste in the playground where Dalit and upper caste kids are now graduating together as 
cohorts as alumni together, which is really exciting. People often ask, how can you tell a Dalit from another Indian uh, child? One of the really significant and tragic ways is many Dalit children suffer from malnutrition. So our schools also have a feeding program. These kids graduate and they're tall and they're strong and they're fit and they know who they are in Christ and they will never have the stigma of having a stumped, sloot kind of uh, malnutrition kind of a body. So we're breaking this off them physically. Uh, the schools have healthcare workers as well. So that's just a quick snapshot of our education. Healthcare, uh, COVID-19, a word we didn't really think too much about just a very, very short few years ago. Uh, it's impacted all of us and everybody in this room has a story. Uh, I was in Melbourne through lockdowns there, so uh, we won't go there. Uh, in India, it was just to a whole other level that we just can't even imagine where there's exploitative health systems, there's, you know, Dalits being turned away, uh, thousands and thousands died. There's no number that we can really land on. Many Dalit people don't have birth certificates. They also don't have death certificates. And so the numbers, you can't actually, it's just guesswork. Uh, it's just dehumanisation to a whole different level. We have health workers across the country and uh, clinics. We have four clinics and a, a small hospital as well. Uh, but because we have community health workers who live in the village, who are attached to the schools, when COVID hit and the schools shut down, we turned our schools into uh, community health centres. And so these community health workers, we could upskill them by uh, putting in place telehealth capability and when these people were lost, when they were desperate, when they were grieving, when they were at the end of themselves, there was a place in their community that they could come to. And, you know, that's what a church should be. It's a place where all of the people on the margins know it's a safe place to come, where they can get help, where they can be esteemed, when they can be told there is hope, that there is dignity and that there is a God who loves them. And so because we had these schools because they were closed down, because the kids were doing virtual learning, we already had a foothold in the communities that we could use as a base to do food distribution and COVID kit distribution and just care for these people. So that was also, we're really excited about the education. We're really excited about the healthcare. We're really excited about the economic empowerment. But the part that really, really grabs our hearts and really devastates us is the anti-human trafficking. So just moving on with that, and again, I'll just be careful. Girls from as young as five or six can be dedicated in a marriage-like ceremony to the temple goddess. Um, for those of you who know Amy Carmichael and know her story, a lot of people come to us and say, I thought Amy Carmichael did a fantastic job and that all of this kind of uh, temple abuse, etc., came to an end. Uh, she did a wonderful job. God used her mightily. There's still a lot of it that happens. It's illegal uh, and it's um, undercover because it's illegal, but it still happens to this day. So these women and girls are abused from an early age, high levels of suicide, high levels of HIV and AIDS, high levels of alcoholism, domestic abuse. It's just a tragic, tragic story. And Again, when we heard about this, we were just uh, shocked to the core that it still happens today, that it happens on our watch. Um, again, how did we get involved? We got taken to a village and we met some of these women and we heard their stories. And I think for both of us, we were impacted differently. Because we were there, these women shared 
These are women who have left the practice because of our team in India. And one by one, they shared their stories. And one of them shared, um, you know, I was dedicated and then had all this stuff happen, which again, I won't unpack. And then I met one of your team and they told me about Jesus. They told me I have value, that I have worth. I had no idea. And this lady has been abused in ways I just couldn't imagine. And she started telling me about how much she loves Jesus. She's completely illiterate. Um, She hasn't read the scriptures, well, she, you know, she can't read anyway, but she just knows that there is a God who loves her and has forgiven everything she's done, but also met her at that very, very deep pace, place of pain. And her face just shone with this love for Jesus. I just felt like I was on holy ground and I was just so absolutely moved by the depth of her love for this amazing Saviour. So that was my story. For Jonathan, um, at the end of this time with these ladies, they started telling us about what they were able to do this week in stopping the practice in their village of advocating for this practice to stop through to talking to parents who were going to dedicate their children. And this lady said, this week was a great week. I met with a family. They were going to dedicate their daughter. This was going to be her trajectory of life. Instead, we were able to get the girl out, talk to the parents, recognise it was wrong, recognise that they shouldn't do this. The girl has now been moved out and she's living in our safe house in another city. And everybody clapped. And this little girl will now go to one of our schools and have a whole new life. And everybody celebrated. And she said, and then the men came and beat me up because I'd taken away their new toy. And she pulled up her sari and she had all these welts on her legs. And Jonathan says he's never been so ashamed to be a man. And we walked away out of that meeting and we just thought we have to embrace this. This is what our calling is, is to work with these brave women and help bring an end to the practice in their villages and help them spread the word that this is illegal, that there are ramifications and that we can see this practice come to an end. So what do we do in this space? Uh, It was made illegal in 1988 because of international pressure, but nothing changed on the ground. But because it was made illegal, we could bring in a team of lawyers who framed laws which are prosecutable. So with that in place, we go into the village, we meet with the leaders and we say, did you know it's illegal? Oh, yeah, but you know. Did you know actually there are laws and we can press charges? You can be fined, you could be jailed, you could be you know, fine, like anything can happen, but we are here and we're not going away until you work within your village to help bring this practice to an end. So with that in place, we go to the women and we say, did you know that the practice is illegal? Did you know that you don't have to say yes to these men? Uh, We have a whole team here who will back you. Can we get you antiretroviral tests? Can we get you, HIV and AIDS, can we get you antiretrovirals? Can we uh, provide health care for you? Look at your daughters, look at your children. Can we provide for them? Can we help you? Did you know that there is a God who did not create you for this? There is no temple goddess. There is a real and living God and He loves you and He gave His Son to die for you. And we will pray with you, we will love you, we will support you. And these women are just broken. 
So they come out of the practice and then they join our team. And so we pay them to be our eyes and ears in the village. And they're the ones who help bring other women out of the practice. They're the ones who help identify other little girls that are going to be dedicated. They intervene. And so these little girls who are at risk come out and they live with their mother's permission in our safe house. And then often we find jobs for these women around where the shelter home is so they can have access to their daughters, have as much time with them as they like. But the girls are growing up, going to one of our schools and knowing who they are in Christ as well. And so for us, this is one of our passions because we get to meet these women and see these girls. So we visited in August this year, which was such a blessing. We haven't been there for three years, obviously, because of COVID. And just a couple of quick stories. So uh, one of the things that we're seeing is uh, so many of our young girls graduating. So she's doing her quadratic equations, you know. She, she should be having this other life of all this other stuff. And instead, you know, she's doing quadratic equations and graduating from school and going on. Um, we went to the women and... and in the villages and they were just grabbing our hands and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. During COVID, we were starving and nobody cared about us. We all lost any kind of job that we had, any kind of money that would come in. There were no safety nets, but you sent money, you sent food, you sent nutritional supplements. And um, we just felt so humbled because we were just the face of so many people who supported our COVID appeal, who got the food, who got the health care to these women. And we were the ones being thanked, but we were just the face of so many others who supported all of that. Uh, the telehealth clinics we saw in place, um, this bottom photo, often we don't show the faces very much of the Jogany women and girls because we want to pretend, protect their identity and protect their privacy and dignity. But we walked into this room and we were meeting with one of the school principals and he wanted to tell us all the stuff that was happening in the school and it was all great. And so there was all of these men sitting around the table with Jonathan and myself. And then we heard, oh, some of the Jogany women are outside and they want to come in and they want to talk with Jonathan and Kate too. So the thing that happened was, and it doesn't really matter what they said, all of a sudden the men got up, went and stood at the back realised there weren't enough chairs, went and got some more chairs, brought them down and all the women just walked in and came and sat down. Now, for me, I just thought there's true transformation that's happened here. In India, in every caste, women are treated as having less value than men. So if you're a little Dalit girl, you are born knowing you are a waste of space. Your parents are so disappointed that you were born. If only you were a boy, maybe things would change. And here we walked into this room and these men stand up, give the women their chairs, stand with respect. But the other side is the women, their dignity has been restored. They walked in, heads held high and took the chairs that were put there for them and just spoke to us and and. It wasn't even what was being said or not being said. What I saw there was just complete transformation. And I was just, well, I found it very hard to kind of hold it together. Um, but then this middle one, we've been building a shelter home, which has just opened last week. And because we knew that it was at the point of being opened, uh, they'd gone into the village and they'd connected, they'd expanded into more villages and connected with more at-risk girls. And we got to meet, uh, 47 girls who have just been rescued 
and just poured out from being about to... Some had just been dedicated, some they were prevented. But they were going to move into the new shelter home and have this whole new life and this whole new world. And I got to meet these girls and one by one we went round the group and we said, what's your name? And what's your favourite colour? And girl after girl said, oh, my name is... Excuse me. My name is Shalini. My favourite colour, that would be black. Five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old girls, their favourite colour is black. And it just epitomises the trauma that they've already experienced. I mean, to have a whole room of girls like this and, you know, I, I want to go back in a year and have them say, oh, I love butterflies. I think pink is beautiful. And just have that childhood restored to them. And that's what we're working on is restoring that childhood to these girls. But to meet them was just, again, I, yeah, I found it very hard to hold it together. Um, so there's last week, uh, so this is the new shelter home that we've just built and uh, we've been waiting for permissions, everything in India is so hard. I mean, mind you, everything can be hard here too if you've ever done a renovation or a building and you're waiting on council, how long do you wait? Well, it takes time. Um, anyway, it opened last week and these are some photos of some of our little girls, rescued girls who have just moved into the shelter one week ago. So you're the very first group that's ever seen this. Um, I'm sending out an email to our database this week, so you're actually ahead of the pack with this. But just to see these girls and, and the joy, and I think one of the things that really impacted me when we were visiting in August, I went to our current shelter home, which is a rented facility and it's substandard, and there was a girl standing next to me. This was Saturday morning and we were playing snakes and ladders with the girls and just chatting with them. This is the girls who have grown up in the shelter previously. And there was a girl standing right next to me. And um, I said, oh, you look familiar, but you look older than these girls. And she said, oh, yes, yes, I am. I grew up in this shelter home. I was going to be dedicated as a jogany. I grew up in this home. I've been to school. I've graduated from high school. And I've just graduated with my Bachelor of Pharmacy and I'm starting my first job next week. But these are my little sisters and every Saturday I come here to spend my Saturday with my little sisters. And yeah, it was just amazing. So lastly, we do very much also focus on sharing the Gospel. So this is Vasti and this is Vasti's story. Ten years old, she was orphaned. All of the extended family, oh no, another girl, what a nuisance, what are we going to do? I know, let's dedicate her as a jogany. So off she went, dedicated, all the abuse, all the stuff, etc., etc., until Vasti just said, I can't do this anymore. She went and found a train line, she laid down on it and she just waited for a train to come. Uh, we actually have about 4,000 churches across India and one of our pastors was walking along and he saw Vasti lying on the train line. So he gathered her up, picked her up, took her home, thought, men have done all these things to her, I'm going to give her to my wife. My wife is the one that needs to bathe her and love her and care for her and pray for her. And so she did. And then uh, over the next couple of years, Vasti started to, they found her a job. She had a couple of little girls. They're now living in our shelter home. They found her a job uh, near the shelter and so she works as a cleaner and she gets to see her little girls. And over all of this time, Vasti uh, fell in love with Jesus. So lots and lots of people in India don't have a problem with Jesus because they already have a million gods, so one more is fine. When they take baptism, it's a renouncing of everything else from their past. 
And so for a Hindu to take baptism is hugely, hugely significant. And so this is Vasti taking baptism. And I got to meet with her and pray with her as well. We do take vision trips to India and you may recognise one of our very special guests who came with us a few years ago. So Deb's been in the shelter. She's met these girls. She's seen these women. She's met these women. And so, you know, it's just such a joy to be here in Deb and Toby's church today and being able to share a little bit about what they've sown into for many, many years. But if you want to ask Deb anything, feel free because she's been there and she's experienced the joys and the, the highs and the lows of the work in India. And you have to guess which hand is whose. Um, how can people partner with us? Prayer is our first priority. This is, uh, you know, we're not just working to educate a child. We're not just trying to rescue a girl. We actually say and articulate, little girls have been dedicated to this temple goddess for 2,000 years. We believe we can see this practice end. In, uh, India is now number 10 on the Global Persecution Index. Uh, the government is not anti-Christian. They're anti-everything that isn't fundamental Hinduism. So Muslims are targeted, Christians are targeted, Sikhs are targeted. Um, we believe we're in a huge spiritual battle and we love, love, love for people to sign up to get our monthly prayer update. We also have a monthly Zoom meeting. We also have a monthly Brisbane meeting, but it's a long way from here. So if you want to know about it, I'll tell you, but it is a bit of a drive. Um, it's sort of eight-mile plains area. Um, but we do have a monthly Zoom meeting. So if you'd like to know how you can pray, we'd love you to sign up for our prayer update. Uh, Dan's already mentioned sponsor sponsorship and it makes such a difference in children's lives. We have children too that you can sponsor. Uh, we have a Christmas appeal at the moment. If you'd love to give a gift this year to somebody that makes a real difference of, you know, uh, items that... And we have gift cards that you can pass to somebody and say, instead of more whatever, another new vase or something this year, um, I've bought you something that's going to make a difference in a life in India. And we also have uh, a youth challenge where we love young adult groups and, and youth groups and children like Sunday schools and so on to get behind and help foster in the next generation a love and a heart for issues of justice and build that into them as they're growing through their teens and through their young adult years as well. So if you'd like to know any more about what we do, we have a table at the back and we'd love to talk to you about that and about how you can partner with us. But I think the challenge I'd love to leave you with today, you know, last week you had uh, open doors here and last Sunday was, you know, global, let's pray for the persecuted church Sunday. So it's very, very timely to have them last Sunday. You know, it doesn't matter what you invest in. It's whatever God has laid on your heart. If it's the persecuted church, if it's people in Vanuatu planting churches, if it's the least of the least in India, if it's, you know, the single mothers in your community, if whatever it is, um, don't turn a blind eye. You will never give more than what God will give back to you and you will walk into a place of such richness and such privilege and such anointing and such joy. Uh, you can never outgive God. It's not about the money, it's about where your heart is. And I just love to encourage you today, just as even, you know, we're coming up to Christmas and, and remembering that God sent Jesus for us to think about what does that mean for me in my world beyond my own salvation? What does that mean that I 
am called to do and be a part of where God has planted me. What does that look like? And just find a few other people to chat with about that and to say, you know, as, as we're coming up to Christmas, I'd really love to invest some time in praying about how this could look for me. And, and I'd love you to be a part of my journey. So that's my challenge for you today, just to consider that over the next little while. And I'll pass back to Dan. Thanks so much for listening to Hope Community Podcasts. We hope you enjoyed today's message and remember to subscribe to the channel to keep up to date. From everyone here at Hope Community, have the best week.